Hi, everybody. My name is John Heinz. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. This fortnight, I am having a conversation with Sandy McKay. He is a father living in New Brunswick, Canada, who homeschooled his two children while his wife continued her professional career. I'm unfortunately going to tell you up front that the sound quality is quite horrible. So I've decided to release it primarily because the content of what he's saying is so impressive. If you'd like a summary of any particular aspects of his answers or clarification on what he said, feel free to email me. Let's get right into the podcast. Let me just dive right in. Tell me a little bit about your homeschooling experience. Sure thing. We we live out in eastern Canada, and we were living, uh, my wife and I were living out in uh, I was in a pretty backward part of the of the uh, province of New Brunswick, and uh, when when our little boy turned five, the uh, the bus ride for him would have been about an hour, and he was still having naps at that point. So uh, it would have been a long day for this little five year old boy, starting at seven, getting home at five, and we just weren't ready to send him for, for a ten hour day when he was five years old. So we. Yeah, of course. At that point, we decided, well, we'll we'll do a year homeschooling. And I was a stay-at-home parent at that point. So uh, I elected to do a year. And then a year turned into two. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, then our daughter was of age to start school. So we started doing the big school with both of them. And eventually it just rolled out into uh, 12 years. Well, so talk about how that was even a... Talk about how at the time that was even a possibility. Back then, that was homeschooling was pretty rare, right? Uh, there was a we discovered a group, a group of uh, of women who were who were homeschooling at that point, and, and we happened to catch the leading edge of the wave that happened here. And there were probably twelve families doing homeschooling in our small city nearby. So there was a support network right from the start for us. That allowed us to, to combat one of the biggest challenges that everyone always talks about with homeschooling is with your socialization. So, okay, so you made the you made the decision to do it at a time when perhaps you had to you didn't have as many resources as maybe were available today. How did you decide what to do? Well, our, our first homeschooling class was a bit of a melange of. Okay, what do we want these kids to learn? So uh, one of the first things, I'm interested in, in art. One of the first things we did is mm-hmm. read our books about Jackson Pollock and in the front of the house. So <laughs> right from the get-go, we, we decided we were going to have a kind of hands-on experience. That really typified our whole homeschooling experiences is experiential learning hands-on. When you're making the decision about what to do, were you following a, a vision of, of education curriculum or of education psychology and like where it should go and what's best for kids, or were you kind of improvising? No, we started out very naive, and we had some okay. some uh, concepts of, of what homeschooling might be, and because we weren't into a long term, we were sort of approaching it ad hoc. And as our kids got a little older, we discovered, oh, there is curriculum available. Oh, there's a ton of curriculum available. Now we have to decide which way we want to proceed and look at all these 
widely various curricula. So how did you how did you early on feel out when you were feeling out the curriculum or when you were feeling out what to do? How did you decide how to balance activities or balance the focus of what you would do with the kids? Early on we decided to to get involved with this local homeschooling group and there were some of our neighbors out in this backwoods area who were also involved in that. So we had uh, resources for discussion right away, and one of the people who was in that group had come from the States, and, and she had been involved with homeschooling. Her kids were probably high school age already when my kids were little. So she was a real mentor to many people in this group, outlining what resources were available and which different curriculums were available, and basically a really good outline of, of what each one could offer and the various approaches to homeschooling, which were everything from unschooling uh-huh. to, to very structured, uh, mimicking public classroom style. And the decision of what you were going to do or what who was going to do was based on the expertise of the individual parents? Not in the beginning. In the beginning, at the elementary ages, I was the parent at home and I taught everything. As we got further into the into their education, we yeah. realized, oh, I'm not very good at math, and I've reached my my limit as an effective teacher. At that point, we began working with other parents and in co-op style, so that I taught some of their kids language arts, and we we found a friend of ours who was uh, a math major in, in university. So she taught our kids calculus and trigonometry. Thank God. So at any given time, your outlook wasn't very far. You were kind of focusing on what's next and and uh, and and then finding a way to get there. How did you determine what was the limit of what your kids could do? Or what, how did you have a sense of whether you were pushing enough or not too much or too little? We began looking forward as we progressed, we started looking forward in, in larger time chunks. We realized, okay, we're we're in for elementary, let's say. So let's look forward to the next four or five years, get them through grade six, then we'll send them to middle school. At that point, we realized, okay, we better come up with a plan and check out what the province expects and check out what what is available through these curriculums, you know, uh, what do they offer for grade three, for example, and how are we going to get to the end of this year? And the same for the middle school era. When we got to middle school, we thought, well, middle school is kind of a tough time for kids, so let's keep them home from middle school. We'll send them to high school. Let's plan this two or three year time frame for these kids. So did you use any online resources? No, we never used any online resources. So it was mostly textbooks and paper and pencil like what or were they activities or was it what were there actual texts mostly in books? Yeah, we used some textbooks. Uh, we also did a lot of um, unit studies which allowed us to incorporate a lot of outdoor activity. We we're outdoor type people, so we didn't want to be stuck in a classroom too often. So we figured out ways to study uh, birds, for example, and study ways that would incorporate mathematics and language arts and science while we were studying birds. So that 
that study could take place anywhere in the forest searching for birds. Yeah, so talk about that. How did that work? Give me some example. Give me how, how did that go, and how do you think how how effective was it, and what was what was good and what was bad about that? Uh, the very best example of of uh, that kind of teaching was taking our kids on a history lesson. We traveled to Europe for three, four months, and and uh, we went to Amsterdam and the Frank Museum and discussed. Uh, what that meant, uh, we we went to Lübeck in Germany and saw a a bell that had crashed to the ground in a church in the war. Were you just picking from your favorite literature and kind of focusing on what was relevant to what you were studying, or was there something more systematic? Yeah, with language arts, I had I had been a English literature major in my university career. Got it. So I, I went through and picked books. That I remember liking and that I knew were appropriate for my kids. My kids were voracious readers by by an early age. But getting them to read was not a question. Getting them to read more slowly was the challenge uh, because they were voracious readers. But I, we also did the traditional comprehension type questions. Okay, what do you think Frodo was doing in this chapter? Thing and, and tell me, uh, you know, find the three sentences that end with, uh, you know, such and such a grammatical style. So we did a lot of grammar. We did. I love grammar, and my kids turned out to like language a lot. So it wasn't hard to get them interested in that type of thing. And, and once we found we all shared an affinity towards novel writing, novels, and reading and writing, and and the discussion of that type of thing, it was it was really natural. So we were really lucky that we were able to find things that they really enjoyed, mm-hmm. and there was no pulling <laughs> to, to do their language art work. And that included even at the time when you started to kind of coordinate with other parents in the region and kind of work with their kids as well. Or I mean, is that? I guess what I'm wondering is 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 the did the did the success of that come from your knowing the kids so well and knowing exactly kind of how to align their interests and their needs to the the material, or or was it or was it just that you know you kind of hit something that worked even for the kids you didn't know as well? Uh, yeah, what I started doing with with the other kids was uh, a specific language arts class. So when we oh, okay. when we got into sharing uh, classes with other kids, we still had very small classes. Uh, I think I had at most eight kids in a poetry class. So before we got into that, I set out a curriculum. Here's what we're going to do in my poetry class. We're going to learn about six poetic different styles. We're going to write poetry. We're going to review different poets and, and that was a very defined defined curriculum defined uh, outcomes later in, in high school years there were only kids uh, in, in my literature class once again I talked to those, those students and said what do you think you want to learn how do you want to learn it and where do you want to go to learn it and 
they said, well, we want to go for a hike to the lighthouse today. And I said, okay, well, let's go to, for a hike to the lighthouse, and, and we'll talk about what you're studying right now. Oh, that's fantastic. So most days you would be out of out and about. We tended to break our day up. Uh, early morning time was, was book study, and uh, afternoon was outdoor activity. Got it. And that worked well for, for all ages or at certain windows of time? It worked well for all ages. It, it worked well... Uh, in almost every circumstance that we found, yeah, we could do our book learning pretty quickly if we really focused. And we discovered really early on that if we focused, we could get our, our book learning done, you know, four or five subjects that you had to do some, some you know, sit down at the desk and do some writing or sit down at the desk and do some math, grammar, or science. We could get that done pretty quickly if we focused. So how did you how did you integrate math and science into into kind of projects and getting out of the house? Once the kids discovered the the richness of any topic, you know, biology for example, my my kids we didn't have a great TV. I think we watched mostly videos, so we get videos from from friends of, of you know a show that used to run called Cracks Creatures. They showed videos of, you know, this is the famous water spider that carries a bubble of water, a bubble of air down and into its nest underwater. Uh-huh. And that sort of thing fascinated my kids. So they discovered through that, well, I guess science must be pretty cool. So let's let's look into animals. And, and that allowed us to to discover, okay, we do a unit study on, on biology, on, let's say, uh, life at the seashore, and now incorporate all sorts of different scientific studies that happen at the seashore near where we live. So how did you feel like you were validating that they were learning? We used uh, standardized tests that the province uh Delivers, so we could, we could pay to take those tests. Most of the curriculum that we bought also had some tests. So we did that kind of formal testing, but we also based a lot of our understanding on whether or not these kids seemed to be okay. a happy, be fairly intelligent, be learning, engaged, socially, adept. and that you know, as as I'm sure you've people about well, socialization thing was was one of the things that we were concerned about we didn't want to raise uh, awkward children awkward adults we devoted a lot of time to making sure there were social outings and once again having a, a body of people around meant that this group could begin to also set up um, social outings and physical education and some drama classes and, you know, like a school play. Well, so, t- so talk to me about the, uh, the end game. How did, how did your kids turn out? And are you happy with, with what you did, what you did and, and maybe how would you, what would you want to do differently? Yeah, we're very happy with what we did. Our kids are now in their late twenties. Towards the end of their high school, they both said they would like to experience public school. 
Uh-huh. So we went to our local public school and said, hey, we got these kids who'd like to take a couple of classes with you. And uh, they, so they did that. They were allowed to. And I think my kids were, were, one, really surprised that their peers were so disengaged from their classes. Explain that. Um, they found that kids who had been working through public school weren't really happy to be there. And so they weren't engaging with these teachers, these adults who had the knowledge to share. And the, so the, the teachers, the, my kids, spoke to me after and said, these kids are really interested in what we're teaching. We're really grateful for their enthusiasm. How quickly after your students, uh, your kids got there, did they pick up on that? Like, was that like an initial impression or is that something that emerged over time? On the first day. So they noticed an antagonism. I think the, the term that they used most often was they're, they're bored. They're just not interested in what's happening in front of them anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, t- so talk about that. So maybe that's a good lead into what I'd like to get to in terms of the experience you had or the the ideas you have of what you think generally homeschooling does that maybe the traditional schools don't do. I always use the analogy that, or the I use the kind of litmus test that that if a, if a public school or any school cannot do as good of a job as homeschooling it raises major questions for me as to why it exists. <laughs> so that's kind of, that's kind of my starting point. And uh, I'd love to hear where you, where you are on that. Certainly. Uh, I remember reading a book by Michael Pollan and, and was, I remember the title of it. He described four different meals in this book. He described a meal at McDonald's, uh, an organic meal, a locally sourced meal, and a meal that he collected from the wild, went out and collected mushrooms and, and shot a boar and, and built a meal around that. And he said that the meal that he collected in the wild was the most ecologically friendly meal. But he also realized that we are not all able to go into the forest and for our food, the population we have, we couldn't do that. I see some similarity to homeschooling. Not everyone has the ability to go out and hunt that meal or to homeschool their children. And we've met many people who said, oh, I could never do that for economic reasons or for reasons of mental preparedness. Yeah, homeschooling does appear to be one of the best educational systems where even an, uh, an unfettered teacher get really good results by, by focusing one-on-one with a student or even one to seven. But we, we had families who had seven kids in their, in their groups and, and they still did really well. So what can uh, the system learn from that is, is a really good question. And, and once again, it's uh, maybe that beer is not necessarily better. Um, we do a lot of research into the old one-room schools and the education that the kids who worked in one-room schools used to get. I, I wondered 
if we've got to a stage of professionalism that uh, is somehow leaving the essence of education behind, we've created a, a huge system that that uh, isn't turning out the kind of people we necessarily want. And, and see how happy my own kids were with their with their you know private tailored education. And I uh, see some of the kids in my neighborhood. I've got a German exchange student right now who who is coming from Germany. Obviously, he's in high school, and he comments on the difference between students in Germany and what he's experiencing here with students in Canada in that same way that our students seem bored and disengaged. Tell me about what the essential elements you are you think are of what makes homeschooling so effective. It sounds like part of it is adapting to individual student needs. It sounds like another part is very small numbers. Another part is flexibility, and maybe that it, that goes with adapting student needs. And it also sounded like having, um, you know, kind of uh, starting with student interests and, 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 and going from there. Are there any other kind of crucial things that you're, I, those are the things that I picked up on what you were saying. Are there any other major ones that you think stick out with you? The, the, uh, what is really valuable is that it can be, absolutely tailor-made the needs of the teacher and the learner. I'm talking about the, the unit study, uh, the, the field trip, the, the um, engagement in outdoor ed. We engaged and worked for us because that's the kind of people we are. We love being outdoors and it turned out our kids like it. So we were able to, for the years, Tailor and adapt, continually adapt to what it seemed our students were responding to, and that is the, is the best essence, I think, of, of homeschooling. Is that you know your you know your children, and if you have a good communication system. You can find out what they love and how do you take that love and use it to. Uh, get them engaged in things they might not love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't love math, but I learned to love teaching math, and we found a lot of interesting resources that allowed math to become games. And games was a lot easier than sitting with a textbook. And so, so what advice would you give to parents who are considering homeschooling today? I would say... Considering homeschool today, don't be afraid about your perceived ability to teach. Start with an with a attitude that I'm not going to do this perfectly, but it's going to be really hard for me to completely screw up my kid. I think that's the fear that most people say I hear that oh, I'm not a professional teacher, I can't teach. But I think the the intent is honest, and, and people follow through with their intentions. That you can't a kid will will demand to learn, and and you you would have a hard time 
keeping them from learning to give them uh, the resources available. And I think that's, that's part of the whole unschooling process is that people learn. You can't stop from learning. All you really have to do is provide them with, with the tools and, and some encouragement. So talk about unschooling a little bit more. I get the way you're defining it as it reminds me of the old Mark Twain quote of I never let my schooling get in the way of my education. And it's it seems like along those same lines. But can you talk a little bit about how valuable that is for, for children at different ages? I know very little about unschooling. Uh, we read about it in our in our homeschooling years. It looked like it looked like a really uh, fun thing to try because it looked even lazier than what we were doing. But, uh, we incorporated that theory that, that um, uh, learning is about allowing curiosity and 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 uh, making sure that if someone's curious about something, we find a way to make that accessible. It was so interesting to watch the various ways that our students wanted to go. And when my daughter ended up taking a high school trigonometry class, I was I was dumbfounded as you know uh, teaching higher uh, higher maths was not something we really were good at, but that's something that she gravitated to. So go for it, kid. So talk a little bit about the teenage years with your kids and how that was maybe different from the traditional experience of many parents with teenage rebellion or teenage, I don't know, angst, and maybe how you think that might have been different because you were homeschooling. We told our kids very early on that in their teenage years, they were uh, required to do some rebellion. So that we set them up in advance to know that they had to take some of their own pathways that we weren't the, the repositors of all knowledge and wisdom, and uh, uh-huh. rebellion was a necessary part of being a teenager. So that this was coming, and, and not to be surprised when it happened. And so, I think because we set that pathway up, we put the flags along the pathway, it wasn't a surprise or a shock to anyone when that started to happen. And so it was a very a gentle process instead of what we sometimes perceive in pop culture as the, you know, the really throwing off of the traces of a, of a young person. So how much do you think your interests and your passions were communicated to your kids because of, by nature of you being the voice that they were kind of working with at a young age versus, or maybe the opposite, how much did they, you know, did they go in a different direction, but because of you and your interests and your curiosity and your motivations and passions versus something inherent on their own? I would say that uh, I have two children. One of my my son now lives in in Austria, and and one of his passions was history. Another was travel. Another was social interaction. So he has a job now working with an internet startup company that uh, is involved in booking tours for people all around the world, and he's. When we traveled to Europe, he was entranced 
by Europe and said, I want to live here someday. So uh, I guess he's really followed through on some of those things we taught him, that he, he loved history and Europe has a little different history than we have here in Eastern Canada. So uh, different yes. architecture and, and uh, so he has followed that path that he identified as a 12, 13 year old boy. That's great. Now, same for my daughter. Uh, my daughter decided she was really interested in outdoor education and followed that path. So she's now a, a licensed kayak instructor and, and putting together her own outdoor adventure business. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This has really been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Well, thanks so much, Sandy. I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter, on the website, secondrail.com. And you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going.